Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle. A private view is with Tamakazu Matsuyamu for his solo show, Episodes Far From Home at Almanrak. I started the conversation by asking Matsu, that's the short version of his name, about his early life and how he became an artist. Okay, so start from the beginning. You were born in Japan. Yes, originally I was born in Japan. I was born in Japan in 1976. Were your parents artists? No, they weren't. Um, they weren't. None of my family members um, were any in the fine art kind of creative community. That's a um, struggle because they don't believe that you can actually make a living that way if they haven't seen it, if they're not familiar with it. Exactly, especially Asia is very conservative. It was a typical you know, being from, I'm in part of the world and age is like, get a real, jo- real job, you know yeah, how they say? Exactly. It? Yeah, I know, this is your hobby. Yeah, get yeah. another job, yeah. yeah. Um, so but, so that's the first hurdle, is to try and convince your parents, I guess. But gratefully, my mother was very for it. So um, when I wanted to become an artist, she was the great supporter. She said, go to Burroughs, because you're not gonna, nothing's gonna happen in Japan. I was like, oh, she was damn right. <laughs> What, yeah. was, what did she do? Well, one of the reasons why she kind of promoted I should do whatever I feel I should is that my mother was, well, she was born in the uh, mid-40s, and then she lived in Tokyo. And then she m- married to my father, which was a very conservative man, pursuing a very small business, a taxi company, that my grandfather started. So a cosmopolitan lady going to a very conservative um, which back then, you know, traditional Asian, they treated women very badly. So uh, she, I guess, welcomed independence and being an individual figure in a global scene because she's always fascinated staying in Tokyo. And so when I mentioned that, she said, then you should just, you know, do it where it's, 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 it's very the most, the epic center, which is New York City. Yes. She said that. Yeah, she did. She did. That's great. And you were 25 when you moved there? Yes, I, and I moved 25 when I was, yeah, I, I first went to New York City. But not necessarily, I didn't know what to do. Because back then in Japan, there were really no contemporary artists that influenced the community itself. There were no Kusama, there were no Murakami, there were no Nara, there, were no, there was none. It was Onkawara, that's it. Well, exactly, yeah. but Onkawara hated Japan, so he never <laughs> really was active in Japan. He was a New York artist. Still do. He really doesn't like Japan. And there are a lot of artists because Japanese community don't nurture all these global artists. Even Murakami, I remember when Murakami said, um, I'm not being engaged in the Olympics because he said Japan's done nothing when I needed the help. Um, and so I guess in my case I came to US and a lot of these creative figures um, in Japan were all in the creative industry such as graphic design fashion design architect so very little fine artists and I came to New York and I wanted to do something creative I went to school I went to Pratt Institute Um, it was graphic design and I didn't like it I'm sure you didn't. Uh, well, because well, I'm, I now I do. <laughs> I had to take yeah. some courses in graphic design, yeah. And the first class was making annual reports. Like, this, for me, it wasn't creative at all. Um, but then this is where, what do I do then? So then, you know, I met somebody like Calls or all these artists in Brooklyn that were just at it and they didn't care how the world sees their work. They were just at it and it was a culture shock. They were a little bit older than me and they're like, wow. They're actually doing this as a profession. 
And then it's like, wow, this is what I want to do. Because change a lot of the yes. nature of the art world. And then even in art world, there was something like Eddie Martinez. Um, and then, believe it or not, there was a lot of these artists that used to do graffiti, street art, or whatever the term it may be. But they were just at doing whatever they felt comfortable doing because they didn't want to fit in the system of kind of very narrow down conceptual art. And they were bringing in their own kind of generational language, cultural language, and then their own identity as well. And, and so, and, um, and they wanted it to speak to everybody, not just the rich. I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, back then, you know, there were no such a market-driven scene, art community as is now. Nobody sold work, and nobody sold enough to make a full living. So we were more cautious in making work toward our our peers, or the viewers, or people who's involved, curators. And in a lot of ways, I think it was healthy. Because when the market don't follow, you can you can only sustain and pursue creating art by creativity, right? Yeah. And a community. Yeah, exactly. That respects you. Yeah. There's so much good about it because people do. I know they fight in a in a street art kind of way, but they do take care of each other. Yeah, they do. Um, they really do. And the beauty is I, I, timing as well. When I went to New York, it was right after 9/11. You know, obviously, economy was hit very hard. But in New York, when the economies hit very bad, that's when the culture grew. There's opportunities. Yeah. yeah. So then I still remember, you know, shortly after that, that around 2002 to 2005, it was one of the most energetic time um, because everything was cheap. The rent was cheap. So, you know, not unlike now, artists were able to rent a very inexpensive studio spaces and they can also live. You know, there wasn't no living, no commerce situation back then as now. Um, I remember visiting artists in the meatpacking district around right? that time. And yeah. they had great spaces. They were cold. They weren't yeah, heated. They were, yeah, but. they were cold. They were cold. That's true. And so I think I was embraced with the timing, and it was just the right timing to be in New York. And getting started with art, you know, I'm a self-taught painter, so I didn't know how to kind of approach my own work. Um, and so then what do I do, right? That was a creative decision-making that I had to make. Um, but instead of trying to imitate or mimic, which a lot of Asian artists were trying to become white artists, um, since I was starting 25, I decided to do s something completely not different because I don't know the notion of what it is to be different. I'm still struggling to be different. <laughs> um, I just decided to take the disadvantages of being who I am in America as my tool, which was I'm self-taught, I've learned graphic design, I'm an Asian artist. And I don't fit into any other realm. I just decided to be at it, and that would be my voice. Um, for that reason, as I, we spoke earlier, it took longer. But till still now, I've been kind of going, I guess, ultimately it went against a lot of the movements or the trends that was happening. But I was able to structure my voice. I think the visual vocabularies that I have is very instant. They, when they see one work, and when they see it again, it's like, oh, I think this artist's work. And so, you know, it took as much as now to create this type of work. And if anyone hasn't seen the work, basically you're mixing cultures and art history, fashion, things you might have seen in magazines, photographs, and putting it all together in a way that makes sense to you, candy wrappers. I mean, it's so unique, but all of them are different. The way I started creating painting was, again, since I had no clue how to paint anything because I... I, I I went to New York and I went to Chinatown, I went to Pearl Paint, and that was my mm -hmm. first canvas that I bought when I was 25. Epic story. I hear it's not there anymore. No, it's gone. It's it built everybody's history, but it's gone. So I needed to find a way how to paint, but, but I didn't want to do the Bob Ross thing, right? Because you know, it was something, well, it was unique. 
So I was just walking around Metropolitan Museum, and I, for the first time, I saw real Japanese woodblock prints. And when I saw that, it's like, wow, wait, this is graphical. Everything hard outlined. It's six colors. That instantly became for me Adobe. Wait, this is Photoshop. This is Illustrator. Ah, this I can register because I studied design. So maybe that's crazy. Going back to my own roots. Yeah. Going in New York to the Met, understanding my own DNA, my culture for the first time, saying this, this I can adapt. I'm 25. Oh. I can adapt. And that was the whole initiation of everything. So then from on, I wanted to bring my own DNA, which was I came from Japan and from the East. And then I started to incorporate more and more of that. However, I'm in New York. It's, yeah, it's, I just didn't want to be like I'm bringing this Asia, you know, this, this kind of now racist term, which I don't care, the, the Oriental word. It's like I don't want my look, the work to look too Asian, too Oriental. Because it's not true then. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel true. You're just kind of borrowing the past and saying, and you're just claiming ownership in big New York global melting pot. Um, so I want to stay pure to what it is to be now in New York and what it is to be a global person in such a big city. Um, and, you know, instead of going chasing for visual quality, I decided to study a little bit about Japanese woodblock prints. And I've understood they, know, they were originally functioned as like fashion magazines. These figurines that were functioning were like back then, a few centuries ago, Japanese people would see their kimono and that is the latest trend. It's like, you, it's, it's old, so it looks like it's classic traditional works. But then it wasn't. Then, you know, you walk around, for example, in the Met, you, you go see like Monet, and with a female oil painting, impressionist, elegant, but then it was a woman outside drinking beer. And that was a very scandalous subject matter. So I've started to understood um, what it is to create art and what the generation of voice always meant. Now, I was heavily influenced by the 90s culture, you know, I was, and what 90s culture represented was like DJs. Um, the fashion designers were doing more of stylistic, um, real clothes, the term is, where they weren't designing huge, chunky runway clothes. They were, they were creating some really wearable, normal day clothes, m making music as well, from, I guess, huge rock music uh, inspiration to going to hip hop or electronic music, house club music. It was DJs cutting, pasting, existing from whether jazz, classic music, and then they were just re-editing to create something completely new. So appropriation in the art world as we use it against uh, this cultural language in the 90s, um, I was heavily influenced by, connected very well. So then, you know, going back to the art world, looking at you know, Picasso's painting, you see he's repainted lots of Velasquez or you see Lichtenstein painting Van Gogh, it's like, oh, there is this language even in the art world. And then there comes the Richard Prince, you know, doing the cowboy Marlboro ads. So now there's a concept here. So, oh, okay. So what is it gonna happen if I wanted to borrow everything, everywhere, every region, from design, from commerce, from magazine, you know, pinups, culture magazine, lifestyle magazine, to something traditional? And then I start enjoying to go to encyclopedic museum, whether it be Louvre, whether it be you know, British Museum, and this and so forth. But I also found that these decision-making were very subjective. Somebody made a call that this is important, and it stayed in this encyclopedic museum. So then what's the difference against the very latest information you see in newsstands in New York City, and they're being consumed, and they're being tossed? And I couldn't find the difference just because it's in the museum for centuries against what's being born now, it's different. 
So then borrowing all these ideas from you know, the, the peers of contemporary artists doing appropriation and then the cultural language of the 90s I was influenced by, I decided to try to incorporate everything because repainting the great master before had already happened. So what would happen if I were to borrow, loan, reference, appropriate, snatch, sample, all together and paint it in my own stylistically visual language and go at it and see what happens. And it wasn't as complicated as this one because now in the studio I have, um, I have 25 staffs. Not only their production assistant staff, they're not painting assistant staff. Um, I do lots of large-scale projects with the design team, communication team, and then the painting team. But you know they're extremely, extremely detailed. And I learned that through going back to Japanese arts and craft. We, our DNA can make something this tiny, we can spend months and months on it. But we're just, we were just bad at making very large-scale painting. So as much as I was heavily influenced by all the, the macho American art, I wanted to kind of follow the very big painting or very large-scale works. But bringing in my DNA of going extremely intensely detailed. Um, and that was kind of the visual finish drive. But then conceptually, since being in New York and longer and longer, I wanted to incorporate you know, snack packages such as potato chips, Lay's, Pringles, Coca-Cola, Budweiser. Um, in this exhibition, you have Ricola, you know, throat candy, and then you have New York uh, coffee mug cup. Um, and all these things that reference our contemporary community and culture and popular um, culture to consumerism, because that's part of our daily life. Then if the image that I paint would go in a museum and stay, then it's the same thing that's gonna happen eventually with all the historical stuff that you see. I don't have it in this exhibition, but you would never see a Bob Ross painting in a museum. But the moment you paint it, it becomes something else. So I have this interior setting where I have a Bob Ross painting sitting in the center. Once you paint a Bob Ross, it talks so much about America, America entertainment culture, and thus it talks about our generational language. And I found very close ties with that. So anything and you're that's open to finding yes. it without being as yourself taught, you didn't know you're not supposed to look at Bob Ross. Exactly. But yeah. then meanwhile, um, that piece right there, um, the center blue painting, which is painting very realistically, is a small brooch. It's that tiny the Metropolitan Museum actually owns. But I, I've enlarged it and I made it to a big canvas. Um, against with all the, you know, and the center figure there, I cut it out from a fashion magazine. It was just a, a figure just standing modeling. Um, and so, and then there's a Chinese, the monkey came from Chinese ink painting. The monkey's gorgeous. Oh, thank I you. love the monkey. Thank you. I think, I think it moves at night. <laughs> the dog um, is actually a Dutch painting. So I tried to, while I appropriate these references and historical images to, you know, um, current consumable product, I want to actually repaint it as is. That's why you see very realistic style. Um, some has more kind of a blurry effect. Um, so that there is an intention that I'm actually borrowing, but somehow they all come together, they all become cohesive, and that's kind of the challenge, but that's where, the, you know, when you're creating the work, it becomes love of labor, and you just add it until it, it feels right. The shape of the canvas, how did you arrive yes. at the dynamic? So just before we get in there, my interest is that, like I said, it's really not about the east and the west. It's really east or west, or east, you know, in between east and west. Or another is, like, I want my painting to be timely and timeless. And it's overly decorative, but once everything is overly decorative, it becomes conceptual art. That was my take on it. 
You know, I, 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 of course I love Roscoe, of course I love Ellsworth Kelly, and of course I love Judd, but it's just that, you know, me being Asian, it felt like I was not allowed to make it because, again, I couldn't fit in the system. So in order to appreciate what conceptual art does and what it offers and how, how historically it made, my take was how can I contribute to that? And it was to be overly, overly decorative. And once it, does, it feels uncomfortable, it goes to a level of uncomfort of over-decorating. It becomes a concept. You're going to start to read something has to be wrong with this, or something must, there's a something else in just you know, painting very detailed work. And that was my take on what conceptual art can do. Um, it is overly detailed, but for me, this is quite minimal. So that being said, where did these shapes have, have come? You know, in Asia, in Japan, in China, traditional painters painted a lot on ceramic ware dishes, and those work became heavily significant historically. Um, because the structure of art history is completely different. West, a lot of portraiture painting, um, and it was supported by the aristocrats, right, the guild, and it was made to represent wealth or uh, propaganda for a specific figure, for like Napoleon, David painted exactly what um, Napoleon wanted. And, and as you said earlier, someone was choosing what was written into history. Exactly. And then histories are always written and edited, right? But in the East, it was really more about utilitarian object, whether it be tea bowl, dishes, folding screens. And it represented more of a life in nature and the cycle of life and through death. And then they became Zen. So you rarely see figure in the traditional form unless it's repainting a historical le- you know, figure. Um, or le- legendary stories. Um, and so I wanted to bri- bridge these two historical aesthetics because I, I fit to both. Um, but, and, and neither. Uh, yeah, not, neither, that's <laughs> a great point. So I like to be in the gray zone. So then these shape had come from organically shaped dishes because a few centuries ago, while the painters started to be ceramic were, it became more than art than rather than utility and object, losing its own function. So it lost the idea of form follow function. But then where does that stand? And I thought there was a very close connection with conceptual art. So this is where these kind of odd shape uh, form came about. Now, a lot of uh, contemporary artists that deals with shapes brings too much meaning to the shape itself. So I wanted to go kind of against it. And that was seeing Ellsworth Kelly when seeing the big two ovals. For me, I, that looked very Asian for me because the ovals looked like a fan or dishes, and there were two in very solid colors. Like, is that Asian art? When I first saw it, I was like, that must be Asian art. And, and he I would have been looking like, at it anyway. He would have been looking at all the art, including Asian true. art. So I find these connections, and then I just all I did was connect the dots. So I have these very organic forms, and then there are, there are, there are, there are figures inside. Do you start with sketches? I do, I do. However, none of my work is pre-generated like in Photoshop and Illustrator. Um, I only have the backgrounds and the figure, and then they're on every day I, I make decisions. Because none of my paintings, although they look very nar- narrative-oriented, it does not have any story within. It's not like there's a narrative that I made that I want the viewer to understand. Having too many cultural signifiers, I want the viewers to start to read what it means and then make a story out of their cultural attribution. Because at the end, we can only understand an image through what we've seen and what we consume and what we absorbed, right? So there are images from painting from China a thousand years ago, prehistoric stuff, to 
Papa influence on um, all these stuff and then you just start to connect the dot but at the end I have a lot of viewers coming saying is this the meaning behind this painting no that, that's your self-reflection and art should be a self-reflection um, and this is where all my painting um, kind of initiates an end so while I paint I want to include these components and somehow towards the end it's starting to make it doesn't make sense but it makes sense do you know what I mean Right. Oh, yeah. It's like, I, oh. I lived in Vancouver. It's 80% Asian. It made right. Canada a better city. And it does, so I walked in, I'm like, this is about the way the world is moving. Right. After Hong Kong, a lot of people had to, to leave. Yeah, exactly. And, and cities like Vancouver became so much more interesting. Oh, you're right. That happened in the 90s. Yeah. It happened in yeah. the 90s. And, and the fashion came into it, better food. The street signs were changed to Mandarin or Cantonese. Just, it was just great, mm. and it, it made it one of the most interesting cities in Canada. So when I walked in, and you're right, I'm putting my own narrative on it, I was like, oh, these feel familiar. Oh, thanks. You know, the, my, you know this kind of cross-cultural migration of, I guess, ethnicity or culture happens because history are written, history are edited, sometimes with a singular figure. And when that happens, these chaotic natural chaos, um, organic blend of what's supposed to not be blending together happens. And I enjoy that. I do too. People move. Yeah. They don't live where they were born. And, you know, being in New York City, um, it, the beauty of New York City, that it's, it doesn't have a cultural shape because there's none. Um, and that's, that's, what's, you know, that's what I enjoy most about New York City, right? The energy. And it's intense because they say that there is 180 languages and 100 religions are being practiced. And that Fantastic. small, tiny city, right? Um, when you have that much religions, it, it means that much different ways of thinking. Yeah. And you, ha um, you have to be open. Yeah. And so... It is a self-portrait, but I wanted, I wanted the work to be very objective that it becomes self-portrait for all of us. Um, and what's also interesting, and you know, living in this digital era, we tend to forge our own identity through social media. We take photo, we edit it, we put it on Instagram, and we idealize ourselves. I mean, that was a traditional function of what portrait painting was. You know, the owners or the subject matter, when, when you request a painter to paint yourself, you idealize, you stage yourself and say, this is the pose that I want, this is what I wear, um, make me look more glamorous, and became a propaganda. Um, and now everyone's doing it for themselves right. on Instagram. Yeah, so it right. partially relates that as well. I mean, these, uh, you know, there are these figures with very current fashion attire, right? And they look gorgeous, elegant. But at the end, like going back to Japanese woodblock prints, that's what self, I mean, portrait painting always done. Um, and it's, it's a little intense, I do agree. Since we're at the show, and the show's yeah. titled Episodes Far From Home, can we go to some of the paintings and sure, talk yeah, through not? them? Well, let's go for this piece right here. This is a, it's called Runner. It's a figure running. Um, the figure has a few bodily parts. They're all abstracted forms. Um, and then hands, the head, you see a Nike sneaker shoe, a running shoe. Um, torso with a very abstract forms. Somehow they all come together with a connecting pipe to represent its motion, which is running, which is rather more uh, straightforward, linear movement. And the parts include few colors. This is a camouflage color, which is a lemon yellow, olive, and then darker green. I wanted to represent a camouflage color with this one. Is that a nod to Warhol? Yes. Um, wow. So hiding in plain sight? Yes. 
And then um, internally, I have these cultural pattern that represents, um, that's a damask pattern that you see in my painting, which is European. This pattern right here, which has a hole, is like the halo of a Buddhism sculpture. So it represents Asia tradition. Polka dots represent influence from the pop art. Um, this square shape is either Chinese or Islamic. Um, this is the current fashion uh, palette that I've brought in. So even within internally, it really discuss about diversity and globalism. And then it, it's coming a figure. Now these abstract forms are, are the forms that I kind of enjoy doodling and then they came into life. Um, but then I love um, painters uh, creating sculptures. Yeah. Um, whether it be Liechtenstein, whether it be Dubuffet, whether it be Keith Haring, and more importantly, Picasso of the Cubism. All got mentioned when looking at this. Oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. um, that said, you know, work, having this opportunity to work with Almond, I wanted to bring something yeah. that references, you know, Picasso. Yeah. Um, if, if people don't know, uh, Almond is... Amon Resch is a gallerist that has several locations globally. I think three in Paris, one in Brussels, uh, New York, um, and then Shanghai, and then here in London. And the importance of Picasso. Yes, is... and you know she's a family to the Picasso family. Yeah, amazing. Uh, yes, and so you know she has this uh, very true origin breed of, of of that and being in Europe. And for me, it's been an honor to work in, in such an establishment, in such a gallery, in such a figure, and you know such a lovely people who's contributed their entire generations in time and life to art world and this community. Um, so I wanted to pay kind of homage and respect to that and I brought this very colorful sculpture. This is the first time it's been shown? Uh, here, yeah. yes. Wow. Um, now, this is the smallest out of the outdoor sculpture that I made. So originally starting in the murals, I, I painted like 20, 20 feet murals, 60 feet murals. So it looks like the walls are painted or wallpapered. It's wallpapered. Um, and you made the wallpaper. Yes, I so did. This is like a yes. Jonas Wood wallpaper or something like oh, that. Yes. Um, if I, anyone hasn't seen it, they've gone to auction as wallpaper. So after they become an art piece. Yeah. Um, and so while, you know, I would like to speak a little bit more about it, um, you know, getting into murals in Brooklyn, I guess the way I made more steps deeper into the art community and what so-called showing in gallery spaces and white cubes, it felt like I was making more distant to the real world because, again, um, the more you step into the art world, it feels like you're narrowing down the audience because people who support the art community are very limited. Um, but however, I went to New York and started using my community's artwork. So then, how do I get back to the community? I don't want to start doing murals illegally again. So that led to the idea of public art. So I've done a huge sculptures like this, maybe 10 meters tall, which is about 30 feet tall. And then this has become my voice so that I do museums, exhibition, indoors, and gallery spaces, where in order to engage myself to public at large, public art became my new voice. And so with this exhibition, I've also done wallpaper to kind of give an homage to that. Um, it's a very, this kind of grandma-esque uh, floral decorative uh, wallpaper pattern. I've actually used a British wallpaper pattern called Tiffany's Garden. I recall this was in one of the museums like V&A. Not sure if it's in V&A. Oh, probably. Um, but they are also one of the most um, inexpensive wallpaper you can buy in Amazon or like in Ikea. And for that reason, it fits both realms and languages, and I wanted to adapt it, so I redrew it. But I redrew it, but I've rechanged the color of I've changed the formation of it's actually placed repeatedly and repetitively 
and then I made it a little bit chaotic and psychedelic so that there's a new take on what you know UK and English has offered but there's my take on it along with the canvas that I've actually been hung so the gallery space would become more immersive with this outdoor work sculpture to wallpaper to very detailed paintings and then th this wallpaper was specifically uh, designed for this exhibition fantastic so Dior's apartment it's so, from a famous photo it's a beautiful red canvas that's almost a bell shape-ish, but other things are going on, and you reimagined it. I did, and you know, the wallpaper background feels very Chinese-esque, right? This is William Morris. I just painted it very red. Um, when I, this is my first show in this part of the world, uh, I guess, uh, British including Europe. Um, so I wanted to find the reference because there's abundance of historical. Oh yeah. I guess icons or figures or ideas or concept or designs that I've always wanted to use and I thought this would be the perfect opportunity. While I'm also heavily influenced by architecture, I was kind of flipping through my pages, the old, old like Vogue's and I was like, oh, this is Christian Dior's home. How elegant is this? So elegant. Yeah. He was a dealer before he was a fashion house. Yes. Which is also amazing. And That's why I thought you picked him because he was both. Oh, and then well, he, he and he was he changed. He was a game changer in fashion as well. Yeah. So all these influences allowed me to kind of. I didn't want to paint him, but I paint something else that's him. And in his real room, there's a painting of him painted by um, Buffet. But I just took the silhouettes. But then this was the fake Hermes pattern that I found in New York uh, garment district. Oh, funny. It's not Hermes. It's a fake Hermes, which I liked. Uh, this is Japanese kimono pattern. Kimono is a traditional dress pattern that was in one of the traditional historical museums. So then I've incorporated all the painting in his room, just switch it into just layers and layers of different patterns. Um, the figures actually were completely came from another cultural reference um, from, I think, a stylistic lifestyle magazine. Really? Um, the newspaper is actually exact newspaper he was actually reading, and we found a day of which discusses about the um, colonization of Egypt. It, then it talks about again, you know, cultural migration we were talking earlier. Um, so while there's this time machine factor of referencing these historical stuff, um, there's a Gucci pattern here which she's actually wearing as a bathing suit. But then this this shirt that the male is actually wearing is a, a another it's a horse. Um, image from a Japanese traditional kimono. So then again, everything is very much translated. You know. And it all has to work together. That's the urgency. Everything has to work together. Oh, thanks. Well, and as a metaphor for life, in a way. So much of the conversation has been about what the question I'm going to ask you now, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. What is art for? Great question. What is art for? To talk about us, you know, just, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about us. And the beauty is, there is no answer, right? Great art is always a great question. Mm. Great art is never an answer. Because we don't know who the hell we are. And that's the best answer. And it's a forever search. And eventually, if you look back, then you only know what the time represented and where it's going. So leave, leave things for yeah. people who are looking at who we were. It's everlasting now, I think. Thank you, Matsu. Episodes Far From Home is on at Almond Rack until the 20th of May. Don't miss it. 